everyone, and welcome back to Blu-ray Boutique. I'm your co-host, Tim Rosenberger. And I'm your other co-host, Rosalie Lewis. And today we're going to be celebrating Black History Month. And uh, just as a, I guess, sort of disclaimer or whatever, I know um, we said this in the last, at the end of the last episode, but just to people who might have missed that, um, I know in the past we've talked about how we didn't want to really do Black History Month unless we could get a guest. But uh, considering the passing of Sidney Poitier... Uh, last month as of this recording and the fact that february was city portier's birthday month um, rosalie and i thought it'd be appropriate to uh, talk about a couple of his films and talk about why he was so special and as an actor and uh, as a person outside of the movie making art field we're gonna be talking about two of his films today one is a raisin in the sun from 1961 which is available through the criterion collection and the second is lilies of the field from 1963 which kino has released uh, lilies of the field being the film that sydney portier won his oscar for but to hear more of about sydney portier's achievements before we go into the movie specifically i think rosalie has put together a little handy dandy list haven't you i have so it's not so much a list as just a few things that I learned when I was sort of researching Sidney Poitier because I knew that he was the first, you know, black actor to win, or male black actor, I should say, to win an Academy Award. And that is, you know, a huge achievement. And I also knew that, you know, he was one of the first big movie stars that was African-American and that he had directed. Um, Andy, my boyfriend, who has also been on this show, has quite a few of Sidney Poitier's films and has urged me to watch them. So I've been making my way through those both before and after his passing. But I was really interested to learn a little bit more about his life. So he came from very humble beginnings, actually from the Bahamas. His parents were tomato farmers, which I did not know. And, you know, when he was young, he went to school, but it wasn't super formal schooling. And he actually dropped out of school at the age of 13. So He didn't even really learn to read when he was young. He learned that later on in adulthood when he was a struggling actor in New York City. So it's quite amazing to think of this man who started out in such a, you know, humble background with very little education that has become one of our most beloved actors and cultural figures. And he was born in the U.S. because his parents, being farmers, kind of went back and forth between the Bahamas and Florida. And he was born prematurely in Florida on one of those trips and they actually he was so small they didn't think he was going to survive so he had kind of started out life as an underdog and then you know kind of proved everybody wrong in every possible way so he you know after he grew up a little bit more he returned to the U.S. and he actually enlisted in the U.S. Army during World War II and then after that he applied for the American Negro Theater in New York City And the first time he applied, he was rejected because they said his accent was too thick. Mm -hmm. They couldn't understand him. And, you know, they they didn't think he was a fit. And what he ended up doing is he listened to the radio and he practiced doing the voices of the, the radio announcers and really trying to get down that American accent. And six months later, he applied again and he was accepted to the American Negro Theater. So... That is kind of how he got his start in acting, and he ended up making a debut in Broadway in the play Lysistrata. So flash forward a little bit further, he made his acting debut, I believe, in the film No Way Out, which is a movie in which he plays a doctor who has to perform uh, some emergency medicine procedures on a very racist man. And it's a film noir. It's very well-known and well-loved. Um, highly recommend seeing it, but that's kind of how he got his start. And then, you know, he continued to do theater as well. He did participate in the Broadway version of A Raisin in the Sun. And then, of course, when it came to film, he was in that as well, as we'll talk about later. And the movie that won him the Academy Award was the comedy, actually, which we'll be talking about as well, Lilies of the Field. But then a few years later, he made his directorial debut with Buck and the Preacher, which is a fantastic Western. If you get a chance to watch it, he both directs and stars in it. And it is a whole lot of maybe fun is the wrong word because there's definitely some heavy stuff in it, too. Um, It definitely deals with race and, you know, some of the unfortunate issues that were going on at the time. 
but I think it also approaches it with a really spirited manner and there is some comedy in it as well and a lot of the interactions and it ends up in some ways almost being like a buddy movie between some of the characters so definitely recommend buck and the preacher his first movie and then you may also know he directed a number of movies starring the unfortunately not so great legacy bill cosby i'm sure at the time he did not realize all that was going on but he did direct cosby in a number of features that were popular and he also directed gene wilder several times uh, Richard Pryor. So he had quite the illustrious film career, both behind the camera and on camera. And in addition to his film career, he also served as an ambassador to Japan for for the Bahamas from 1997 to 2007. And he actually received the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2009. He's written several books. So he has written about his own life, in This Life, which came out in 1980, as well as The Measure of a Man, a spiritual autobiography that was released in 2000, and then Life Beyond Measure, Letters to My Great-Granddaughter, which is from 2008. And finally, he actually released a suspense book, a suspense novel called Montero Kane in 2013. So I'm going to have to track that one down because that sounds, you know, I love my mysteries and my suspense. Mm -hmm. That definitely sounds like something that I would be interested in. But, you know, he always really sought out roles that were unique and weren't just going to be stereotypical or adhering to racial stereotypes. And that's why so many people have said what an important figure he was for them. Just seeing somebody that, you know, on screen that looked like them and wasn't doing, you know, the the servant role or the slapstick, you know, let's laugh at this man role or, you know, something that was degrading he really brought all kinds of different characters to life on screen flawed as well as noble and i think you know we'll talk about that in these two movies but he had such incredible range and i think um at a time when you know we really needed it as a country during the 1960s during you know some of the most heated times for civil rights he was a figure that a lot of people really looked to and he's been called the martin luther king of the movies because of that So I think, you know, he really has an amazing legacy. I can't say that I'm in any way an expert. I'm just barely Mm. scratching the surface. So don't just listen to us. Like, please go in and do your own research and watch his movies. But um, it was really great to be able to dive in and get to know his legacy a little bit better for this podcast. And Mm -hmm. I found a quote from him actually when he did an interview with Oprah later in his life where he said, I think about death, but I'm not fearful of it. I've reduced the concept of my existence by saying I truly, truly try to be better tomorrow than I was today. And I mean better as simply a better human being, not a better actor, not a better anything, but just a better human being. And when I die, I will not be afraid of having lived. So I love that that is, you know, the the legacy that he left. And I hope that we will get to enjoy more of his movies. I know I have a few more I need to watch, so I'm excited Mm -hmm. to, to get to those as well. Okay, so our first film is A Raisin in the Sun, again from 1961. The movie is based off the 1959 play by Lorraine Hansberry. And uh, like Risley said, Sidney Porty was in the, did, did do the part on stage. And I think most of the people in this movie originated their parts on stage. I think there's maybe one or two instances of, of new actors coming on, but I think most of the people were reprising their roles from the stage. It stars, obviously, Sidney Poitier as Walter Lee Younger, um, who lives in a small apartment building in uh, Chicago with large-ish family for the amount of room they have. He lives with his wife, Ruth Younger, played by Ruby D. His mother, and now widow, wit, uh, her husband's dead. I can't say the word. But her husband has passed on. Uh, Lena Younger, played by Claudia McNeil. And then with um, he also is living with his younger sister, Benita Younger, played by Diana Sands. 
And they also have their song, uh, Travis, played by um, a kid who I don't know if did many other things, uh, Stephen Perry. Um, movie also co-stars in his first ever movie, Louis Gossick Jr. And uh, there's actually quite a bit going on in this movie. So uh, before the events of this movie, I forget exactly how long before, but the kind of head of the family, Sidney Portia's father, has passed on. And the family is about to inherit uh, $10,000, which in today's money is around $93,000, $94,000 in insurance money. And everybody kind of has a different idea of what they want to do with the money. The mother, who is technically the one inheriting the money, she wants to put some of the money toward uh, Benethia's uh, medical school. And ain't nothing going to touch that part of it. Not nothing. And I... Uh... I've been thinking, just just thinking, mind you, that we could maybe meet the notes on a little old two-story somewhere. With a backyard where Travis could play in the summertime. If we use part of the insurance money for a down payment and everybody kind of pitch in, I could maybe take on a little day's work again a few days a week. Lord knows, we wouldn't have run that is here rat trap to pay for four houses by now. The wife, Ruth, um, also has similar ideas. She really wants a bigger house for her son to run around and stuff and just more room for everybody and all that stuff benethia wants it for her medical school walter though wants to use it to invest at least some of some or all of it to invest in a uh, liquor store that he is trying to buy or start up with a couple friends of his ruth and alina both disagree with that you're tired ain't you baby you oh so tired of everything me, the boy, the way we live in this beat-up hole, everything. Moaning and groaning all the time, but you wouldn't do nothing to help, would you? I mean, you couldn't be on my side that long for nothing. Good. Walter, please, leave me alone. Man needs a woman to back him up here. Walter! Mama would listen to you, and you know she listens to you more than you do me and Benny. She thinks more of you. Please, leave me alone. This ain't no fly-by-night operation. I mean, we got this thing figured out, me, Willie and Bobo. Bobo? Huh. Look, we figured the initial investment on the place to be about $30,000. That's $10,000 a piece. Now, of course, we got to spread around a few hundred so as not to spend your life waiting for them clowns to let your license get approved. You mean graft? Don't call it that. Goes to show you how much women know about the world. Baby, don't nothing happen for you in this world unless somebody gets paid off. Walter, leave me alone. That ain't none of our money. I ain't going to be harassing your mama about it. Lena, on the grounds of she doesn't really... She's kind of more of a, probably a woman, I think, who supports temperance and isn't really one who wants to put money into a business that is selling liquor to people and booze and all that stuff. But Walter is is, is determined, Walter, who uh, works, I think, as a driver for rich, uppity people in the city, really wants to get out from that job and do something bigger and better with his life and to provide more for his family and provide more for his son, while the mother is more of a penny pincher and is really conscientious of the fact of how poor they are. But Walter is still really trying to convince his mother to give him at least some of this money to invest in the liquor store. The man say to his woman, I got me a dream. She says, eat your eggs, they're getting cold. man say to his woman, help me now to take a hole in this world somehow. And she says, eat your eggs and go to work. I tell you, I got to change my life because I'm choking to death. And all you say to me is eat these eggs. I'm looking in the mirror this morning, I'm thinking I'm 35 years old, I'm married 11 years, and I got a boy who's got to sleep in the living room because I got nothing, eh? Nothing to give him but stories, like on how rich white people live, eh? Eat eggs, Walter. Damn these eggs. Damn all the eggs that ever was. And go to work. I'm trying to talk to you about me. Now, all you're going to say to me is eat these eggs? You never say nothing new. I listen to you every day, every morning, every night. You never say nothing new. So you'd rather be Mr. Arnold than be a chauffeur. So I'd rather be living in Buckingham Palace. So there's a lot of different things going on, a lot of different inner turmoils, and just a lot of drama going on in this little apartment building. But Rosalie, I caught sight of your letterbox entries for both this and Lilies of the Fields, so I have a very vague idea of what you thought of of them at least in terms of quality i caught one to the fact that i think you enjoyed this one quite a bit didn't you i did i gave this one the coveted five out of five stars on letterboxd and it was a slow build for me because i didn't actually know anything about the plot i knew it was you know a well-renowned play as well as movie but 
I was completely bowled over by the performances, by the electricity between, and I'm sure having, you know, done this on stage multiple times with that group of people, like that probably helped cement the chemistry that they have, but they're very believable as a family and they play off of each other so, so well. And you have, you know, a lot of sort of interactions, monologues, dialogues, you know, back and forth exchanges, constantly coming in and out of this apartment, which is very cramped and about to become even more cramped. And, you know, it's just a, it's a very believable scenario even now, right? Like I can think of, you know, the housing crisis and the fact that there are so many people who are barely scraping by. And if they had, you know, a check, even in today's money of $10,000 coming their way, I'm sure that there are people that would be like, that would be a life-changing amount of money and like trying to figure out how to properly deal with it. And then you add on, you know, the the racial issues that they're dealing with at the time and segregation and, you know, it, it just adds so much more to it. And the fact that this mother, this matriarch of the family watched her husband toil so hard and this is his only like legacy that he can leave behind is this insurance money. Just the the weight of that for her to have to figure out now how to dispense his legacy properly. Like it just really struck me. I don't know if I was just in the right mood for it, but I just think this movie and these performances were outstanding. No, I mean, I think everybody in the film delivers wonderfully and they're all can get across the wants and needs of their characters really well. I mean, I connected a lot with Sidney Poitier's character just in terms <laughs> of his, again, his desire to kind of want, wanting to do something special and particular with his life is something I can really relate to. So um, I sympathize with him a lot, not always in his methods or his attitude or you know some of the choices he he made and some of the selfishness with which he approached what he was trying to do but i can understand his frustration with his wife and i think really his entire family because he i don't think anybody really in terms of his wife his sister and his mother i don't think any of them really quite understand why he wants to do the liquor store. It's not even so much he wants to, to have a liquor store. He just wants to have his own business. And he wants to do something bigger and all that stuff. And they don't really quite understand that. And he's just constantly frustrated by their not understanding why he just doesn't want to do what typical, probably not just black men at the time, but just men in general, just not wanting to do the standard of wanting to do something different, I think was, for me, very relatable, and I think is always relatable as a character trait. So yeah, I liked him, his character a lot, but all the other characters too, I can get their frustration. I mean, the mother is, Ruth is very, very exhausted. I mean, the uh, Lena Younger talks a lot about, you know, you need to put your feet up every once in a while. Right. <laughs> And she's not, and she's exhausted for more reasons than one. And uh, then we have the young sister who wants to do medical school, wants to do that, but she's, you know, and has some good ideas and is very sympathetic and in some cases is the most level-headed of them, but also is also very much a college kid who's very pretentious and can also be very frustrating then you have, you know, the mother who is in some ways maybe more conservative and not as understanding of people's wishes and is more maybe pig-headed than she should be in certain cases. But you understand she wants to provide something better and leave something better for her kids and her grandkids and stuff. So it's, it's a great collection of characters. What I found so compelling about this was that just like with real life, as the movie goes on, you think you figured out whose side you're on or who, which character you are rooting for, empathizing with the most, and you've shaken your head at the other characters or you've been like, what are you doing? Or, you know, had those moments of like, you just want to shake them, right? And then your your loyalty changes as you start to see things from the other person's perspective or the person you thought you were rooting for says or does something that you're like, I don't know about that. I don't think I can join you on that you know, bridge. So I think it's just so nuanced in that it is portraying these people as real people. None of them are saints. None of them are villains, but they're all just, you know, struggling real people. And I think, you know, the, the Walter character in particular at the beginning, 
I was a little bit put off by him because I was like, he's got this sweet wife who's just trying to do her best for him. Of course, she's frustrated and worried about money. She lives in this tiny house. He stays up drinking with his friends. Like, I can certainly see why she's upset with him. And he seems like he's just easy breezy, wants to be, you know, the hero and giving his son the money that they don't really have and all that. And I'm like, oh, I can see why she's pissed. And then I could see why he's upset because it seems like nobody but him believes that there is potentially a way out of poverty if he's able to get the funds together for this business. And yeah, it's not the business his mom wants him to have because she's, you know, she doesn't want to see liquor, you know, ruin a, a life or a neighborhood or whatever. But it's the opportunity he has in front of him. He's got a mind for business. He talks about how, you know, all day long he's driving people around and he's driving past restaurants, seeing these young white men, you know, not much older than he is, some of them even younger, like meeting and and exchanging ideas and having business meetings. And that's all he wants. And it's just like, it's such a simple, small dream, but like, it's so out of reach for him. And it's, I think that's what makes it really relatable and heartbreaking at the same time. Mama, Mama, I want so many things. I mean, I want so many things that sometimes I think they're going to drive me crazy. See, I'm 35 years old, and I ain't got nothing. I ain't going to be nothing, Mama. Just look at me. Look at me. I'm looking at you, and you're a good-looking boy. You got a job, a fine wife, a son, A job. Now, I open and close car doors all day. I drive a man around in his limousine, and I say, yes, sir, and no, sir. And shall I take the drive, sir? Mama, that ain't no job that is nothing at all i don't even know if i can make you understand understand what baby well sometimes it's like i can see my future just stretched out in front of me my whole future a big blank empty space full of nothing just hanging at the edge of my days waiting for me but it don't have to be and then the other character that i would say probably my favorite character frankly was benitha played by the amazing Diana Sands. I just wanted to like hang out with her. She seems so cool, but she's also, like you said, a college student, right? So she strolls in with a guitar in her hand and they're like, why do you have a guitar? And she's like, I started taking guitar lessons. And everybody in the room is like, really? Cause they know that she's gone from like hobby to hobby to hobby. And they're like, well, what about all that photography equipment that you have and you never used? And what about that? You know, riding equipment, you were taking horseback riding lessons and that outfit cost you $70 and you never wear it. And so, you know, we all know people like this. We maybe even are all related to or have been this person who is filled with ideas, filled with idealism. She's all about being very political and she's decided she's an atheist. And of course, that's going over just great with her (laughs) mom. And, you know, so she she's really fun and really, you know, lively, which I, I think is needed because this is otherwise could be a movie that gets a little bit almost too sealed in its own like dark emotions but there are these moments of of joy and celebration and liveliness even though they're all stuck in this tiny little apartment where they have to go out into the hallway and like jump in to the bathroom before somebody else Mm. can go in there because it seems like multiple tenants use the same bathroom and you know all these things right so she puts on records that she gets from her friend from Nigeria that may or may not want to, you know, make her into his princess. And she's like, not so sure she wants to go down that road because she's young and liberated, but she also can't help but, you know, find it attractive. So yeah, I really liked her. I thought she was a very fun character and it also kind of helped this stay grounded and not feel overly melodramatic yeah she helps give the film some levity and stuff even if she's not always overtly like a comic relief character so much but she does give a little bit more her story is probably the lightest of them and the easiest to and in some cases you do kind of laugh again partially just because of how much of a 20 something she's being do you expect this boy to go out with you looking like that well now that's up to george if he's ashamed of his heritage oh dear oh dear here we go again a lecture on our African past, on our great West African heritage. In one second, you know, we're going to hear all about the great Ashanti empires and the Songhai civilizations, the, the sculpture of Benin, some poems in the Bantu, and then the whole monologue is going to end up with the word heritage. Let's face it, baby, your heritage ain't nothing but a bunch of raggedy spirituals in some grass huts. Grass huts? 
Now you see, George, you see, you would rather stand there in your splendid ignorance and know absolutely nothing about the people who were the first to smelt iron on the face of this earth while the Ashantis were performing surgical operations. When the English were still tattooing themselves with blue dragons. And she's just being very, again, very pretentious and just like, you just roll your eyes at her. But at the same time, yeah, you do have the love for her and her, you know, like a lot of black people at the time, especially young ones of wanting to celebrate their culture, not just the culture they have have as african-americans but just as black people in general and the history there is very endearing and important as well I th again with all these characters you hit so many different generational problems that are not just uh, relevant for people in the 60s but again now and then also so many different i think aspects of african-american culture then and now that i think you hit a lot of different interesting issues and you can learn i think a lot just from all these different characters and where they're coming from it seems like they are in an integrated world until the mother decides that she wants to buy a house and then it ha ends up being in a white neighborhood so of course now there's going to be pressure from the white neighbors about having a family move in that doesn't look like them and so it punctures that everything is going to get better now sort of thing so it really demonstrates kind of that intersection of like it's not just about the money. It's not just about race. It's about both. Yeah. And these barriers that they're up against. And it's even from people that seem to be, or at least think that they are friendly or progressive or, oh, if we just sit down and talk about it, I'm sure we can come to a resolution. And I think we're still having some of those conversations now, right? There's still these different opinions about how we can approach civil rights and racial justice and having discussions now even about like teaching critical race theory in classrooms and whether or not that's just stoking division or if it's really necessary for us to to talk about and confront and so we're still having these same conversations about how to deal with these problems do we just talk it out as they try to say you know these these white neighbors try to say or are we willing to do the harder thing and actually confront it head on and say what we mean and, you know, deal with all mm -hmm. the painful history. So I appreciated that the movie kind of called that out mm -hmm. in a very provocative way. Well, and I appreciate the fact that they didn't go with neither of these films, um, really go with the black and white kind of racist caricature villain type mm -hmm. person. I mean, this film in particular, especially, I mean, this one deals more with much more with, race and, and prejudice and stuff than the lilies of the field does but the fact that you have this guy who is from the Clybourne park improvement association who comes to the apartment at one point to, to kind of dissuade the youngers from moving there because the neighborhood doesn't really want to be you know integrated again he's not kind of a foamy at the mouth hateful at least overtly white guy but he is there is still obviously prejudice there that he doesn't, I don't think even he realizes that he's being, I think he thinks he's being fair and oh, this would be better for everybody. And I think it is important to show that, that I think some people just don't realize that they're being racist, really. I mean, right. Partially... Even says, oh, trust me, racial prejudice is not the reason why. We just think people from the same backgrounds just tend to get along better when they're all together. And, you know, yeah. it's just about having that common ground. It, it's like, no, it's a lot more insidious than that, but you're just not saying it, right? Yeah, and he doesn't. It's this kind of casual, almost oblivious racism mm -hmm. that I think it's important to show, as well as the, obviously, overt Ku Klux Klan hateful people. So um, I appreciate that level, too. And John Fielder, who you'll know is a character actor, as soon as you see him or hear his voice, you'll know who he is. If you don't know, he's uh, he played did the voice of, 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 not Porky Pig, the other one. Of, uh, of Piglet in Winnie the Pooh. Yes, he's a, Piglet. A very long time. So if you want to see a casual racist Piglet, uh, just close your eyes. And oh, while, gosh. While he's, while he's talking. <laughs> but he he's does the part Winnie very... Winnie the Pooh for me. <laughs> Sorry. But anyway, he does do the part very well. And props to him and props for Lorraine Hansberry for not just the layers of the Ungers, but of this important aspect of racism in the 60s and now. I think while we're kind of on the subject, you mentioned Lorraine Hansberry. I think it's worth talking about her for a minute. Yeah. So, you know, her background, she was actually from Chicago, 
which Mm -hmm. makes sense that she would set this play in Chicago. And, you know, she was actually the first African-American playwright to have um, a play performed on Broadway, from what I understand. So she really, she was a, a real trendsetter and historical figure herself. And she was also openly lesbian, I believe, or at least had definitely talked about it. She had talked about the work of W.E.B. Du Bois, which, you know, he was definitely super important there. And her own family had struggled with segregation and they challenged a basically segregationist policy in a Supreme Court case called Hansbury versus Lee. So she had direct specific experience Mm -hmm. with segregation in Chicago in her own family. And um, I think that that really informs this work and this play because it's coming from such a real place. She also approaches it very matter of factly. Again, it's not there's no histrionics here, right? There are, you know, speeches in the movie. It feels like a play in that way, but I definitely just feel like it was very grounded. The fact that it came from her own experience, I think, is the reason for that. There was some, like you said, some aspects of it that feel like a play. and There was some filmic elements to it, but it is very real and, like you said, very matter-of-fact. And uh, to keep in mind for people, she died uh, very young. I mean, she was 34 going on 35, She died in 1965, only a few years after this movie came out. I forget what she died of. Oh, she died of pancreatic cancer. But, I mean, just the fact that, I mean, I don't know the demographics of playwrights at that time in terms of stage stuff, but she also wrote the screenplay for the movie adaption. I mean, and just having, I mean, by 1960s, to have a woman write a screenplay for her Hollywood is not something that you're going to see too often. It's not, like, totally unheard of, but... A lot of that, by that point, was still very male-dominated. So just the fact that she got to do that and that it wasn't like, oh, no, somebody else has to write it or whatever, I think was great. And obviously it's sad that she died so young when I'm sure she would have done a lot more great stuff. But I will also give credit, I do want to give credit to Daniel Petrie, who uh, directed this, who was a, a, a white man, but I think does, at least from my point of view of it, is very respectful to the material. He's very respectful to the actors. And I think really brings out a lot of good stuff um, in this. I do wish there was a black director doing it, but I think he does do um, a very good job with adapting the material. Yeah, absolutely. I think it could have been done poorly. It could have been adapted poorly. And I think if that had been the case, probably Sidney Poitier and others would have bowed out. But it doesn't water the message down to appeal to white audiences in any way. I mean, it's it's in your face, it's honest, it doesn't hide any of these hard truths. And I think that for a movie that came out in 1961 when we were still grappling with a lot of those things as a country, and frankly, we still are, I think that is important. And unfortunately at the time, it probably did take you know a white voice to, to be mm-hmm. the one to raise this into a movie that more people could see. But I'm glad that it got the recognition that it did, absolutely. The next movie that we're going to be talking about is decidedly more lighthearted than A Raisin in the Sun, and that is Lilies of the Field. This one came out, as we may have mentioned, in 1963, and it was adapted from a novel of the same name, and this is the one that won Sidney Poitier his Oscar. So the basic story is that a man named Smith, Homer Smith, is driving through the countryside in Arizona and he stops because he needs some water. And it looks like it's a farm and it ends up that there are several nuns working there who don't really speak English, at least not too much, or they seem not to. And the place doesn't seem like it's super well kept up. Looks like it's in a bit of disrepair, but they give him the water. And then the mother superior basically talks him into staying for the day Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. so it would seem, to help with a little repair on the roof. And, you know, he doesn't have a lot to do. He talks about going somewhere to get dinner later, but he's just passing through. So he's like, okay, fine, I'll stop and help you with your roof. That's no problem. And he is a, and he is a handyman. He is a handyman, yes, who, you know, has some tools in his car and things like that. So he helps with the roof. By the time he gets done, it's late in the day, and he tells the lady, you know, to pay him, but she sort of pretends to not understand slash brushes it off and brings him in for dinner, which ends up being a rather meager meal. Not uh, not a lot going on for dinner. And then they speak German to each other. He kind of figures out that they are not, obviously they're not native to um, America and they are trying to learn English. And so he kind of has some fun talking to them and trying to teach them a few English words and things like that. No, no, we got to get organized now. No, everybody sit down. Everybody, everybody sit down. down. Everybody sit down. Everybody sit down. You stand up. You stand up. You stand up. You sit down. You sit down. You sit down. We all stand up. We all stand up. We all sit down. We all sit down. (laughs) And they all call him Schmidt, which is very funny. So he stays overnight and he figures, okay, I'll leave, you know, tomorrow morning. But then they kind of talk him into staying a little bit longer. So they, the mother superior shows him this, kind of area that's overgrown and has a bunch of you know random bricks laying around and she says that he's the man she's been praying for and that god sent him and that he's going to build them a chapel and he's like oh no i'm not like that's not me you got the wrong guy but she you know really pushes and he ends up staying because he thinks maybe if he stays a little bit longer she'll pay him but of course that's not the case So this continues on, and I'm sure you'll be shocked to learn that eventually they convince him to do the building, and (laughs) the story carries on from there in a funny kind of battle of the wills between him and Mother Superior, and, you know, they come to love him, and he begrudgingly puts up with some of their shenanigans and, and helps them out, and, you know, it's a very gentle comedy that I enjoyed, even though I think at times, you know, you have to suspend disbelief, because I don't think somebody would just randomly stay without getting paid to help these poor nuns as lovely as they might be but i enjoyed this one how about you i enjoyed this one i guess it's a it's a much lighter film comedy drama type thing it is a very pleasant film uh, i don't mean that derogatorily i just mean it's, it's very nice there's a lot of positivity to it and stuff i mean i don't think it's as unbelievable i mean yes you could argue whether somebody would would stay this long you know, without being paid and stuff. But I think Lila Scala, I'm probably mispronouncing that, but the actress who plays Mother Maria, who I think was from Austria, and it should be noted that all the, the nuns in this are supposed to be German, from uh, East Germany, who I think came mm-hmm. over the border so they could get to America and get to this plot of land that they sort of inherited. But she is very, sometimes even frustratingly so, manipulative. And how she deals with him, find keep finding ways to keep this guy here and stuff. So that I guess I didn't have as much of a problem with. What I found interesting about it was just the fact that I mean, obviously you go into this saying, okay, this is what Sidney Portier, you know, the Sidney Portier, you know, Sir Sidney Portier, won his Oscar for. Um, and it's interesting the fact that he was nominated for only two times for Oscars. One. In 1959, for the 1958 movie The Defiant Ones, which he did with um, Tony Curtis, I believe. Then he won for this, which again came out in 1936, and then he got an honorary Oscar in uh, 2002. Because you think of him winning the Oscar, you think it would be for In Heat of the Night, or maybe To Serve With Love, or maybe even Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, or something. Those are quite a few films you would think he would win for, but no, he wasn't even nominated for any of those films. <laughs> Right. And, and, which is very interesting, especially in Heat of the Night. If you go into this movie thinking, okay, this is what he won the Oscar for. It's obviously very important for film history. It's very uh, important for black actors or black filmmakers and all that stuff. And it's not a bad performance. It's certainly a good performance, but it's not maybe at the level that I would think of of Raising the Sun or in Heat of the Night or whatever. I don't know if it's maybe just because it's lighter. 
I don't want to be a snob with, you know, oh, it's a comedy, so it's not, or comedy drama, so it's not as deserving of acting accolades or whatever and stuff. But it is a good film, and I recommend people see it, but it is not that it is forgettable, but it's the most leaning towards that. It's the lightest and fair of them. So, I don't know, it's just, it's just interesting that he won his Oscar for this out of all the things he did. Yeah, I agree. Although, there's something I love about that, right? I almost love that he was rewarded for something unexpected and, and lighthearted and funny where he gets to be comedic and where he mm-hmm. gets to play, you know, maybe a version of himself. I don't know. Right. But he seems like he's having a good time and he actually gets to do a fair amount of acting without necessarily talking. Like, I feel like he has mm-hmm. some great just body language and facial expressions and, you know, some of the looks that he exchanges with, the nuns, especially the mother superior, he's doing a little bit more with a little bit less, if that makes sense, versus some of these roles like Raisin in the Sun, where obviously the material is so good that maybe in some ways people are like, oh, it's just a good story. Anybody in that role could do a fairly decent job, right? This one, I feel like maybe he had to do more building of this character because there wasn't as much meat on the bones. Does that make sense? No, I get what you mean. He does probably lift the material up in some ways that maybe um, a lesser actor wouldn't have and stuff. But no, he does. I do like seeing the comedic side of him because often we obviously we think of him more in dramas and stuff. But, you know, seeing Sidney Portier, the person, he did, certainly doesn't seem to be a curmudgeon or an ultra. I mean, serious to a certain extent, but obviously I think he had a sense of humor about himself. So to see a film where he is mostly playing it light and funny and stuff, there are certainly dramatic and heated moments, but to see this lighter side of him was very nice. I question, it's interesting because this film, how the films I've seen of his, and certainly compared to Raising the Sun, there's very little like racial stuff in it. Mm-hmm. There's one point where he's trying to get a, he gets a job to help finance the the making of this church where he's going to work at this construction businessy thing for two to three days out of the week and the white owner of this business is initially very you know not very racist but there is some racial tension there and he calls Sidney Poitier boy at one point and stuff like that and that's the most you really have of the racial stuff there was a nice little there's a lovely little comment on it it's kind of like Sidney Poitier does something it's much more subtle and stuff and not as memorable, but it's something similar to what he did in Heat of the Night where one of the uh, uh, people who haven't seen the movie, a uh, rich white guy, slaps Sidney Poitier's character at one point and Sidney Poitier's character slaps him back. And it was a very famous thing at the time, is very famous thing in that movie. There's a similar-ish thing in this that isn't as physical, isn't physical at all, but has a similar effect where after uh, Sidney Portier is able to get land this job at this place, as the guy, the white owner, is walking away, Sidney Portier calls him boy, and then the guy stops for a second and gets annoyed and then just walks on and stuff. And I thought that was a lovely little touch of comment without saying it of, one, you're not going to talk to me that way, to, mm-hmm. yeah, it is kind of, of belittling and degrading for, for somebody to refer to you like that, isn't it? And so I love that moment that was done in a comedic way, but I think said a lot for that character in that small comment on racial uh, relationships um, in the 60s. Yeah, I really liked that moment as well, because a movie made at this time, which I think wasn't this also the year of the, the March on Washington, like I think this was a time where you really couldn't not mention race. Like it had to be somewhere in there but it's it is subtle and there's other kind of things in this movie and i think there are lessons of of tolerance or coexistence or you know um appreciating people that are different from yourself whether it's him teaching the nuns english or the nuns learning to sing the song amen with him Mm -hmm. and the fact that they're catholic he's baptist the fact that you know they're they're building a church where, you know, a lot of the families coming to it are Mexican or, mm-hmm. you know, Mexican-American or Spanish-speaking. The guy that runs the diner talks about how he's not really religious, but, you know, this is his insurance plan, <laughs> I think he calls it. You know, so there's a lot of different, like, viewpoints, and it's a very kind of live-and-let-live attitude, which maybe isn't the most progressive, but I do still think at the time there was a value in a movie with this kind of 
perhaps not super hard hitting, but still welcome message. Yeah, I do. I do wonder, though, if I am suspicious and maybe it's the pessimist in me. But I know that Portier, apparently his enjoyment of getting the Oscar was a bit short lived because he was a bit afraid or was suspicious thinking of that he less got it for his work in the movie and more just got it as so he could be the token African-American guy in Hollywood, which you could argue for against that idea. But my worry with that is, again, the fact that this is, especially of this time, probably one of his less or least racial, racially charged films. The fact that he won for this does make me worry that, like, I mean, I don't know. I could go two ways about it. Did he, is it nice that a, kind of a, a non, not very strong or very uh, dramatic message movie won him the Oscar? Or is it maybe a bit cynical? To, maybe it is a bit cynical to think that they didn't award him for a very progressive movie like In Heat of the Night or other important movies like To Serve With Love or whatever. They gave him for this small movie that doesn't talk about race as much and it maybe isn't as uncomfortable for certain people in the audience again i don't know maybe that's me being cynical but i do i do worry about that and maybe some of the motivations of giving him the oscar to him for this out of all things yeah i could see where you're coming from for sure but i sort of here's how i feel about it right and other people i'm sure have different opinions and i'd be very interested in in hearing from other folks but i think ultimately the reason why they gave him the Oscar matters less than the fact that he got it and that that opened so many more doors, not mm-hmm. just for him, but for other performers. Mm-hmm. So somebody had to be first. Some movie had to be first. It was at least not a movie where the portrayal is offensive or stereotypical or horrible. It's a movie where he gets to be a likable guy. Mm-hmm. And so it's definitely not confrontational or in your face at all. And, you know, there are, I think, arguments to be made that maybe that's how it should have been. But we even have now situations where, you know, Martin Scorsese doesn't get an Oscar for Goodfellas, so they're going to give it to him for The Departed, which I do love. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you see issues like that all the time, right? Where they don't get the Oscar for the right movie, the right performance. But, like, later, they're like, well, okay, you were good for a long time, so we're going to give it to you for this. So would it have been better for him to not win any Oscars and then just get the honorary? No. I mean, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm glad that that didn't happen. So at some point, like, we can't rewrite history and make it so mm-hmm. that he wins for the quote-unquote right movie or right message. But at least he did win, and now, you know, we have that door kicked open. So it's not so much end justifying the means, but it's more... I guess I'm thankful that it happened no matter what the circumstances. And, you know, I mean, even in his own response to getting the Oscar, he talked about how, and this was mentioned in the Washington Post obituary for him, he said that, you know, after his win, he said, I doubt that this honor will be a magic wand to wipe away the restrictions on job opportunities for Negro actors. And that in his own experience in the 60s, you know, he had creative control just in the sense that he was able to reject roles that he didn't feel were worthy. But... He, you know, he didn't have any illusions of of what it would mean, but it still was significant. And it's still something that, you know, I mean, it's something that we're talking about. And it was how many years ago, right? Mm -hmm. So definitely still important. People like to say that the Oscars don't matter, but Mm -hmm. as much as you might like it, they do in some ways, right? And I think this is one of those ways. I do want to talk about, again, obviously, Sidney Poitier is the man of the hour, but... Uh, I do want to talk about, again, I'm probably mispronouncing your name, but Lily Scala, who I think gives, a, it's, again, sometimes frustrating performance, because again, sometimes you do just get, you get as frustrated as, as Homer does with just this this nun and how kind of sometimes passive-aggressive she is and just how much she's kind of manipul- manipulating the situation to keep him there and stuff. But I think there is still an enduring quality to her there's a funny quality to her at one point uh, homer gets very frustrated with her because she's very strict and stuff as the mother as the mother superior not just with the other nuns but with him as well and he at one point he kind of just gets lets her have it how frustrated he is with her you know that stuff you wear you think it's a, a uniform that makes you some kind of a cop or something laying down the law throwing your weight around you, you sound like one of them old war movies a regular hitler and then there's a night, there's a, I thought a very funny little callback to that later where he is, is, starts to get help, let's say, 
with making the chapel and he starts being more taking head of you know charge and telling people all right now vamanos vamanos let's get this show on the road let's go let's go and you girls these men are gonna need food lots of it so start squeezing that cow and buttering up those sandwiches more adobe in here let's go you too mama match them hitler and it was just a nice little uh, endearing touch that uh, I loved from her. My favorite scene with those two, because they have a number of really great showdowns. And I think at the heart of many a comedy is a, a certain antagonism between the two leads. So they play that very well. But one of my favorite scenes is the one where he's still trying in vain to get her to pay him. And so proclaiming not to speak English, he goes and finds the, the most gigantic <laughs> Bible you can possibly imagine. And he's flipping through it to try to find the verse in the Bible that says a laborer is worthy of his hire. And he points that out and she reads it. And then she flips to a verse in her little Bible that has, you know, something about how, you know, you should consider the sparrows and they don't think about where their food's going to come from. Consider the lilies of the field, which is of course where the, the title comes from. So they're having this fight using Bible verses. <laughs> it's very comical. And I loved that scene. And the, the disparity in size between the nun's Bible and his Bible is also great. I just, you know, it, it was a very comical scene. There's also just some great dialogue between his character and the guy who runs the diner. So on Sundays, because the nuns don't actually have a church, he ends up driving them down the road to a few miles to basically the outside of this sort of like camper trailer situation where a priest is, you know, performing the Sunday mass for a group of people that are just standing around because they don't actually have a building. And then right near there is a diner. So that's where he goes and he gets, you know, his coffee and a huge breakfast so that it's not like the, the sad breakfast that the nuns serve him and he basically gets like 12 of everything and then he has these conversations with the guy that runs the diner and those Juan. were all my favorite scenes yeah from Juan played by character actor Stanley Adams who I liked uh, quite a bit in this movie yeah it's a very it's a great because he's so starved because he basically I think before this we see him have a meal that's basically like bread water and milk maybe, maybe one other thing or something it, it, you know and he's just hungry all the time and you can understand he's trying to do this physical labor mm-hmm. and he's eating barely anything so he orders yeah it's like three eggs tons of coffee a bunch like, of flapjacks yeah, sausage or something and then some yeah. the guy you want some beans like yeah i'll have some beans too and it's all this stuff and it's it, you know it's like he puts the blues brothers turkey scene diner scene to shame pretty much <laughs> Um, and uh, yeah it's a very again I don't know there's something very relatable about being hungry and wanting a big meal especially breakfast because he especially the, whenever he goes to mass they won't let him eat breakfast beforehand because they like oh no no not on Sunday before mass you eat, you eat afterward right so he's always especially hungry so that's a lovely scene yeah and I also just have a real soft spot for watching people eat breakfast in a movie yeah there's something about it there's just nothing like it it always makes me want breakfast food myself. Yeah. And if I don't have coffee with me while I'm drinking or while I'm watching, I'm like, all right, time to make a pot of coffee. <laughs> well, so, yeah, this if, movie will definitely make you want coffee and breakfast food. Maybe not watch it hungry. Maybe eat while you're right. watching it. But yeah, good scene. this would be a good movie to put on on a Sunday morning while you're just, you know, maybe sitting in bed and yeah. relaxing and having a few um, breakfast items you could watch this movie it would be a great way to go yeah and i mean on that note i think one thing i liked about the movie to get away from the breakfast discussion is that uh it is get unlike raising the sun it is a much lighter film and i think i don't know if this theme was intentional or not but i know at one point the mother superior mother maria mentions how you know they're trying to get bricks for to build the church and they're out of bricks why do you work on the road gang when you should build the chapel where are the bricks they will come. Maybe not tonight. But there's other things you could be busy. Raking and planting trees. We had this contract. You failed to keep your part. I failed because I put my faith in people instead of in God. Again, I don't know if it was an intentional theme or not, but I felt, at least for her character, and maybe f- 
to a certain extent maybe for homers and maybe for the the construction guy owner played by uh ralph nelson who was the director of the film is maybe about having faith in people and that people can be ultimately good and hopeful and charitable even homer is eventually doing these things to be a better person and for the sake of doing them and less for the money as i think the time goes on yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's a certain push-pull between Poitier's character in this and the Mother Superior character because he feels like she should be thanking him for his work and she's like, no, I'm thanking God, you know, and, and it really ends up being about people in a community kind of coming together and helping one another. So whether you believe that that's divine intervention or if you have a more humanistic stance of like, this is what humans can accomplish when we get together and care for one another... I think it still ends up being a positive either way. Especially during, I mean, this time where it's, you know, in the real world, it is very rough. It is, in some cases, hard to have faith in people because of certain stuff going on and stuff. I think it's nice to see a movie like that that can maybe reinvigorate your hope and remind you that, hey, there is, you know, people are capable of better things. And it can just, you know, it, it is a pleasant movie right now to watch to give you some nice warm fuzzies. Absolutely. I feel like this is a movie you could watch with pretty much any member of your family and they would enjoy it. You know, if you're looking for a family film that isn't in Kanto, <laughs> maybe watch this one. So, Rosalie, how, especially after watching these films, I know I think you've, and since Portier passed away, you've watched, I think you've watched quite a few Portier of his films. Have your thoughts changed or expanded at all about him? Or kind of what are your thoughts about Portier um, having watch more of his films and or at least watching his films again more recently well i think it definitely deepened my appreciation and i think it being these two films in particular in some ways you couldn't get two more different movies especially made in such a short time span so i'm really if anything curious to see more i'd seen more of his directorial movies than the movies he had starred in and i'm really excited to watch more of these earlier films because you know there's there's a lot to see i also would definitely recommend if you haven't to catch up with some of his work particularly in the 70s 80s that he directed because there's some really good gems in there one that i enjoyed i don't think the name is great because it doesn't really accurately describe the movie but he directed this movie hanky panky with Mm. um just so many hijinks i mean it is a kind of murder mystery kind of caper film a romance there's a lot going on in it and it's a very underseen movie but i think if you seek it out you will be pleasantly surprised so he really again like he had so much range as a director as an actor and i continue to want to seek out more of his movies and if anything i would say you know if you're somebody who hasn't seen maybe any Sidney Poitier movies maybe you've been intimidated of where to start or thought oh you know he's just such a legendary actor and maybe I'm you know he's like all these films are just so important capital I important and I don't know where to start that's not the case right I feel like his performances are ones that'll invite you in rather than be off-putting or somehow you know so much larger than life that you can't relate to them I think you're going to find that no matter where you start with him you're going to find some portion of his humanity that rings true with you and that you'll find relatable yeah i mean obviously certain some of the stuff that he is representing and saying and stuff through his performances and his movies are very specific to the african-american or black experience but like we've said of raising the sun stuff there's stuff that he his character in that is going through that is relatable to anybody of any race or any part of the world that you may be living in so i think like a lot of great actors and writers and producers and directors and storytellers and stuff he he is is certainly influenced by his background and where he comes from and he certainly brings that to his films but he is also well at least i said with ozu last month the last episode uh is able to in a way get past all that stuff and also just get like you said to the root kind of humanity of everybody so in that sense his films and his his role as an actor i think is universal so we wanted to recommend some additional movies to seek out for black history month either movies made by black filmmakers or you know that are primarily focused on black actors black stories 
And I recently watched one that has been on my watch list for some time now. It's called Losing Ground, and it is directed by Kathleen Collins. It came out in 1982, and currently you can find it streaming on the Criterion channel. It may be on a few other services as well, but this movie is really just an interesting portrait of a marriage, which makes it a good kind of, I think parallel with a raisin in the sun basically you have you know a young couple i would say youngish sarette scott plays sarah who is a philosophy professor at a university and you know her students greatly admire her and you know it seems like they also quite fancy her which makes sense she's a beautiful woman her husband is played by bill gunn the wonderful bill gunn and he is an artist and he's a little bit older than her his name is victor and he has gone from being an abstract artist to wanting to paint more, you know, realistic figures. And so they're going to take a trip to upstate New York for the summer where she's going to do some, you know, research paper stuff and work at the library. And he's going to go around and paint pictures of the beautiful Puerto Rican women that live there in the area. And so that creates a little bit of tension because he has some dalliances that she's not necessarily a fan of, but they also are deeply in love with each other. And she is seeking in some ways to have the same kind of artistic freedom or joy or ecstasy that she sees him having, where he just has such a pure practice of his art and she's not getting that same kind of fulfillment in her line of work. And so she's seeking after what she calls the ecstatic experience. And this leads to both entertaining like funny scenes and also scenes that'll kind of make you think and are there that are very thought provoking and it's an independent movie so it's shot on a budget but i think the performances are great and it feels very ahead of its time and it's also just got a real warmth to it the movie is losing ground again from 1982 starring the great bill gunn as well as surrette scott and directed by kathleen collins and my thing is more of a collection of, of films. Uh, Kina Lorber, oh, I don't know, in 2015, I believe, I released a set uh, called Pioneers African American Cinema, which I forget the kind of range of it, but releases stuff from in the silent era and beyond. And um, I have only want, I don't have that set, unfortunately. I want to, but it's just expensive, so I haven't gotten it yet. But I watched a little, little, little bit of it. And what I liked about it, it what I like about it is even in one of the early films that they have on there, Hellbound Train, which is not a very good movie, but even in something like that, you get, I think sometimes in spite of the film, you, you can get a point of view of the African-American experience of that time, at least in the United States. And that I like. Just again, in that in that film, you see people in black neighborhoods and you see the conditions of them. You see black people having fun. You see black people as just as because you should see them as people. And so, I mean, it's it's not really what the film is about, but it's is some subtlety stuff that's kind of there that I love. But as a whole, I would just say check out that set. Obviously, just seeing. We kind of somehow I think can forget or especially people who are getting into film maybe aren't aware of the deep history of of black cinema not just here but around the world and stuff so I think this is a nice set to to educate you or remind you of the deep history of that of not just people like Oscar Michaud but other people too who are trying to have uh, F, you know black people who are trying to have a voice in film and in the early days and up you know up to including the 60s so definitely check that set out if you have a chance i think it might be off there now last time i checked i think they had the set on netflix to stream um, that might have changed um but i think it might still be on there but if you can't check it out try to see if you can get it from your local library well i have one more to recommend there's so many to choose from but i had to pick a movie from the 90s because the 90s were a great time for black filmmakers and a really incredible run of dramas, comedies, romances, thrillers that all came from black actors, black directors. So the movie that I want to talk about is called The Wood, and it's from 1999, one of the best years ever in film, if you <laughs> ask me. And it centers on these four friends, basically the night before and the day of one of their weddings that one of them is getting married and 
the others are kind of in the wedding. They're his friends. And it kind of flashes back and forth between, you know, the present and their time growing up together. So it stars Omar Epps, Richard T. Jones, Tay Diggs, Sanaa Lathan, Lisa Ray McCoy, and a whole bunch of other very talented actors and actresses. And it's a really sweet movie. There's a lot of, like, lightheartedness and uh, a lot of just, like, you know, great memories. It's a good coming-of-age film. It's a great film about friendship. And it was directed by Rick Famuyawa. Um, he also directed Talk to Me, as well as Brown Sugar and Dope. Those are some of his other movies. Um, he's an emerging writer. I believe he's of Nigerian descent, but he was raised in Hollywood and kind of, like, um, made a lot of, I think, really good movies that feature the black experience in America. And this is one of the ones that I actually recently discovered. I watched it last year for the first time and I found it really enjoyable. So that's The Wood from 1999. Well, switching gears just a bit, Kino is doing a 4K Blu-ray of In the Heat of the Night that has <laughs> been announced. So that's going to be a really cool pickup. And it will also feature They Call Me Mr. Tibbs and the organization oh, on the second cool. disc. So definitely going to be really cool. There's going to be new audio commentary on there yeah. as well as, um, I believe, some trailers and some things about, you know, the slap heard around the world, um, a few featurettes about Quincy Jones. And um, it definitely seems like if you're a fan of Sidney Poitier or you want to get into him, this would definitely be worth picking up. So, again, that's coming from Kino. And I believe it's coming out in April. All right, so next month, just to give you a little preview, we are going to be talking about animated films, but not just any old animated films. We're talking about adult animation. So put on your adult hat and go watch Perfect Blue, which is a Japanese film, and Heavy Traffic, which is an American film, but both of them are animated and decidedly not for children. So unless you want your kids to be asking you potentially uncomfortable questions, I would recommend screening it first by yourself. Looking forward to that discussion. And then in April, we have the joy, the delight, the utter pleasure to talk about Brendan Fraser films. So I'm very excited for those as well. TBD on what they are. And um, you're just going to have to be in suspense for May because I have not yet picked the movies for that month. So yes. more to come on May. And um, we are excited for what the future may hold. But in the meantime, that is our current lineup. But uh, in the meantime, uh, until you see us next time, uh, you can catch our parent site who partially hosts this at 25yearslatersite.com. You can also check out its main Twitter account, 25YL Media, that has changed from previously. And in its bio on its Twitter page, you can see uh, its Twitter pages for separate Twitter accounts it has dealing with horror and sports and stuff. Um, they're, I guess the last episode, they're doing some rebranding where they're refocusing certain things and stuff. Um, and you can also check out my Twitter account, at Cinema Packrat, where you can find uh, links to uh, my YouTube channel. And you can find me at Rosalie Lewis on Twitter, where you can find my writing on F This Movie, as well as I do have an upcoming podcast on F This Movie. And, shameless plug, we're going to be doing F This Movie Fest, which is a all-Twitter film festival coming up on... That first weekend of March, uh, we're doing films from 1996, so keep an eye out for that, and occasional other podcast appearances. But uh, until next time, to prepare yourself uh, to talk and listen to us ramble about adult animation. So we will see you then. Mm-hmm.